You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past. We are talking today with Kevin Koistra about Montana's own Hazel Hunkins and her role in the women's suffrage movement. Nancy and I are so excited to have Kevin with us today. We are sitting in the Extreme History headquarters, and Kevin is joining us via Zoom from Billings, Montana. Thanks for being here with us today, Kevin. Well, I'm I'm pleased to uh, be part of... uh, the Extreme History Programming, and I'm actually up in the uh, tower of the Parmley Billings uh, Memorial Library on Montana Avenue in downtown Billings right now, which is our home base for the Western Heritage Center. So. Nice. Wonderful. wonderful. I love to talk about Hazel. So. Okay. <laughs> well, Kevin, uh, you are currently the Executive Director of the Western Heritage Center, and you have worked in Montana for three decades as a community historian, archaeologist, cultural anthropologist, and script writer. And when I was reading your bio, I've read your bio many times before, but I've always missed the script writer part. So we'll have to have a conversation at a later date about that. That's kind of interesting. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> right. Um, Kevin has an undergraduate degree from Montana State University and a master's degree in applied anthropology. And on Zoom, Kevin is holding up his MSU uh, state mug. Go Cats! Woohoo! <laughs> Um, a master's degree in applied anthropology from Northern Arizona University. He serves on many boards, including ours, the Extreme History Project Board. In fact, he was a founding member of Extreme History and has been a part of Extreme History almost from its inception. So we're so glad you're here with us today, Kevin. Yes, thanks, Kevin. So 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment, the amendment which gave women the right to vote. Yet it didn't actually give all women the right to vote um, exactly, which is what we'll talk about a little later in the program. It effectively gave white women the right to vote. This was a long and hard-won battle for suffrage, lasting officially about 72 years and unofficially probably quite a bit longer than that. So the Seneca Falls Convention, the Women's Rights Convention that was held in Seneca Falls, New York, is probably, in most people's estimation, what marks the official start of the women's suffrage movement. That was organized by Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, two abolitionists. But it ultimately took another seven decades for women to win suffrage all across the country. So today we're going to talk more about that final push of the suffrage movement being the effort to get the constitutional amendment passed, which would give women all across the country the right to vote, rather than leave it up to the states for each state to decide separately. 
This effort was really about the equality of women, particularly educated women, who resented being seen as legally subordinate or as sort of constitutionally or biologically inferior to men. So today we're going to explore that aspect of the suffrage movement through the lens of one of our hometown heroes, Hazel Hunkins. And Kevin, you've done a lot of research on Hazel over the past 10 years or so, so we consider you our resident expert. She was raised in Billings, where you now live. Um, She ultimately left for college and earned a degree in chemistry from Vassar, I believe. She had plans to find work as a scientist in her field, but upon coming back to Montana, she found that that was not to be. So I was wondering if you could take up Hazel's story from there and tell us a bit about her homecoming to Billings and how she first got involved in the suffrage movement. Because after all, Montana had already given women the right to vote in 1914. Um, Yeah, actually, you you bring up a good point. A lot of young, educated women were at the forefront of the movement at the time. So, And she fits that. She, She had been teaching chemistry at the University of Missouri, in 1916, she comes home to uh, take care of her ailing mother here in Billings. Uh, and in the course of coming back home, you know, she just figured, well, I'll apply for some jobs in, you know, chem labs or chemistry labs here in town. And uh, the sugar factory, for one, you know, she went, applied. They said, oh, my God, you're qualified. But we really don't want a woman working in our lab. You know, so that right there kind of triggered something. Was it the lab coats? They didn't have lab coats cut for women then, and so was (laughs) that or something more sinister at work? Very very specific design, right? (laughs) And, you know, she, she, uh, you know, ended up teaching at the the Billings High School for a short time, but almost simultaneously at the same time, Clara Louise Rowe from the National Women's Party comes to Billings uh, the story is that she, uh, this is from Hazel Hunkins' own diaries, uh, that uh, she, uh, Clara Louise Rowe was here to do like speaking engagements and recruit some of these young, educated women to join the movement, the National Women's Party. And so Clara Louise Rowe went to the Billings Gazette, you know, said, hey, you know, who, who do you know in town might fit that profile? Ah. And for some reason, hmm. the Gazette directed them to, uh, I think it's uh, North 35th, a few blocks from here. And the story is that uh, Hazel Hunkins got to visit, sit on the porch of her home, and talk to Clara Louise Rowe. And, and you know, um, the diary is fantastic because basically everything that Clara Louise Rowe said uh, just resonated to her. You know, that she really felt like it was time for women to be fully engaged and empowered in government and uh, civic duties, you know. Uh, and so she even asked the question at the time, what could I do to overcome the exclusion of women from the satisfying creative aspects of life, she immediately joins the National Women's Party. And that's in the fall of 1916. She organizes a a small group here in town that would include uh, Gwendolyn Hayes, the poet. Um, So, you know, you can see the group already. You know, there are a lot of Billings High School kind of kids who were more the educated women that uh, got going here in Billings then in Montana. And then she would join the national movement also. That's so interesting. So how old do you think she was at the time when she made in 1916? I think she was uh, probably about 20, let me see, 26, or 24 to 26. I, I'm trying to do the math in my head. It should be very Right, easy. and a lot she's of... A 19, she's a 1908 grad of, of okay. uh, Philip High School, so... 
And a lot of women were, probably her old classmates, were getting married around that time. And that quote really stands out to me that you said, wanting to really fully engage in these creative endeavors. So it doesn't sound like teaching was really her first choice or or necessarily teaching high school a good second choice to what she wanted to do with her degree. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, she's going back to the school she graduated from. I don't think that was getting a graduate degree, you know, getting a chemistry degree, all of those things, teaching at the university, and then she comes back to Billings, and it didn't seem very satisfying to her. So, uh, And yet she just absolutely triggered. She did. She said at the time, she said, I looked at my girlfriend's domesticity with great disdain. Oh, my. So men- mentioning that, you know, she's just not going to settle uh, for, you know, the lifestyle that was already set up for most young women at the time. So, uh, you know, then she just takes off. You know, next thing, she's down in Colorado Springs with a national convention. She's, you know, standing in the back of a pickup. Alice Paul, the leader of the National Women's Party, is encouraging her. You know, all of these young women, get up there, say something, you know, convince people that all women should have the right to vote, you know. Wow, so and she was she, ready, she was, yeah. Was so afraid, though, you know, because, you know, being asked to speak in public, you know, in the back of a pickup to a large group, you know, and and like Alice Paul just really, uh, she was, uh, you know, a spitfire, you know, but she understood to get these women engaged, they had to be pushed up front and become somewhat fearless, uh, you know, in delivering the message. And so, uh, yeah, within like a couple months, she's, uh, you know, flying in an airplane over San Francisco and dropping leaflets from planes and stuff. Actually, it's an odd story because uh, the guy who was the pilot uh, died a month later in a plane crash. Oh, my. Wow. That happened a lot with those early planes. So, yeah, uh, yeah, she was, like I said, fully engaged. Within three months, she was already uh, being noted in newspaper articles uh, on the West Coast, in particular in Colorado. So, So, Kevin, you kind of mentioned that there was this National Women's Party led up by Alice Paul, and um, that is the one that that Hazel ended up joining. And that's interesting to note that um, Clara Louise Rowe came to Billings and kind of recruited her for that. But there was also this other women's party who that was forming about the same time with uh, leadership by Carrie Catt. And the name of that party was the National American Women's Suffrage Suffrage Association. And these two groups were very different. They were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to win suffrage for women. But maybe you could talk about the differences between those two groups and talk about the differences between Alice Paul, the Spitfire, and Carrie Catt a little bit. One of the the really interesting things about any uh, social movement like this is the diversity of strategies. You know, it is incredible because you can look about, you can look at 12 or 15 different groups and they all, you know, maybe at at some point in their, in their process, they're looking at the right to vote for all women, you know, but some groups are looking more at states rights issue, moving it through the states rights, you know, kind of one after another, you know, because of course in Montana already in 1914, thanks in large part to Jeanette Rankin. Um, you know, we already had the right to vote for women. You know, the National Women's Party was interested in particular uh, of recruiting young, educated women from states in the West who already had experienced the vote. You know, they thought that that would, uh, you know, uh, lighten the blow, I suppose, you know, um, 
you know, Kat and uh, other groups, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, the woman, uh, Margaret Sanger, for example, uh, you know, who becomes uh, instrumental for Planned Parenthood, you know, they're looking at, uh, you know, women's reproductive rights, you know, birth control, and the right to vote, you mm -hmm. know. Other, others are looking at, um, you know, I'm thinking Carrie Nation, for example, you know, she's looking at, uh, you know, prohibition, uh, anti-alcohol, mm. and the right to vote. Right. Um, you know, Kat, um, if I remember right, started out more as a state's rights person, um, but the right to vote is really the end. The difference with the National Women's Party uh, is really their singular focus. Uh, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, the founders, really felt like if we, we just have to have one singular focus, if we're like Margaret Sanger and take on some of these more controversial issues, we'll lose momentum. You know, so the National Women's Party was had the singular focus, let's get the right to vote, you know, almost with the notion that when it passed or if they succeeded, um, their job would be done. You know, and, and secondly, what, what differentiates the National Women's Party is, like you said, it's more of a um, more of a radical approach. You know, Lucy Burns and Alice Paul, had, they're both American, but they had come from the British suffragist movement, which really was, could be violent, you know, where, where people were smashing windows to, to, to kind of make people aware of the movement. Uh, they didn't bring that tactic, but the tactic they brought here is a tactic we see today. It's basically, uh, in some ways, trying to... Um, uh, get the empathy of the public, you know, sway public opinion. And what you do is you use the press to your advantage. You know, so Alice Paul understood the power of public opinion and swaying the press. You know, so when they started, like, for example, their protesting in 1917, there's a movement called the Silent Sentinels. Um, you know, all they did was stand in front of the White House silently with banners saying it's time for us to get the right to vote. They, they weren't confrontational, but they were waiting for confrontation. You know what I mean? They were, they, I always think it's ironic that we think of like people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, you know, as that kind of uh, passive, what is it, what's the movement called? Not peace, like a peaceful movement, you know, passive. Pacifist, uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, and so, but really the, the National Women's Party is doing the same thing, you know, years before. They're just standing silently in front of the White House. Every time the president had to drive in or drive out or dignitaries from other countries, they had to face these two or three dozen women standing there in all kinds of weather, not doing anything, not shouting or anything, uh, but taking on the blows in a sense. So uh, radical in the sense that they were out in public and they were out in, in one of the most public spaces and spaces right. where the media was going to see them and they weren't doing anything to agitate. But just their presence and, yeah. and constantly saying this is what we want in and of itself. So it sounds like you were saying, you know, this was considered a little bit more of a radical approach at the time than some of the other groups and also a more singular focus, as if by the time we get the vote, then everything else can happen because then women will have the vote. We can talk about reproductive rights later or something else. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm interested in with Hazel – she she joins this group. They come to Montana. She gets recruited. She joins this group, and she ends up, as you say, in airplanes, you know, potentially as far as the West Coast, and then in Washington, D.C., as one of these silent sentinels herself. So she's 
leaving home, leaving her teaching position, um, going to do this. And I just want you to talk a, a little bit about how were they received by the media at this point in just this early phase in 1917 and how Hazel herself felt about being involved. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, like I said, you know, Carrie Chapman Cat and the, and the, the National American Women's Suffrage, you know, they were out there too. And so they were getting press. But these were younger women. You know, even Alice Paul, even Lucy Burns, these are younger women. These are educated women. They look different. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about Carrie Chapman Cat and uh, some of those older faces, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. So there's a youthful energy right away. And that is captured in the early press. Um, you know, I mean, they did something, in, I think it was in December of 1916, you know, where uh, Hazel Hunkins and uh, Bessie Papadro or something uh dropped a banner while Wilson was speaking, you know, in the halls of Congress, you know what I mean? And then they were escorted out and their banner was taken away. Oh, they were doing all these little fun little, you know, (laughs) sneaky things. It gets them noticed, though, is what what you're saying. So they learned that tactic, maybe. That's right. Okay. And so they were were doing things that weren't really wrong or illegal, but they were going to get maybe some, some mention in the press. Yeah, and, and I think, like you said, that the, the early on, especially in January, February, and then March of 1917, uh, you know, the articles are very flattering. You know, uh, you know, Hazel Hunkins, pretty and 23, uh, you know, is you know deserving of being on the front lines as she braves against the icy wind. Wow! So you know, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing her picture on the front page of uh, you know newspapers around the country. You know, mentioning Billings, Montana, and mentioning her role. Uh, you know, being on the front line and, uh, you know, interviewing her and, you know, asking why you're doing it. And I think the the press early on is very, like, almost uh, supportive. You know, all the Western states, of course, by this point uh, in uh, early 1917 have given uh, women that earned right, you know. Um, But here they are in Washington, D.C., and the national press is covering them, um, you know, very nicely. Actually, it's really interesting how you know, they were emboldened, uh, they were getting, you know, popular opinion was swaying their way, the, the press was being, you know, glorifying their, you know, struggles, and, right. and for the most part, they, were, they weren't really attacked at this point, you know, okay. they were just seen as, uh, you know, just another round of suffragists, they've been doing this, as you mentioned, for 75 years already, you know, this kind of constant you know, hum, you know, like, come on, let's go, you know. So, state by state. Yeah. But here you have that national and sort of a fresh approach with these young women and and what they were doing there. And then yeah. and then I'll, I'm going to toss it over to Crystal because that um, positive spin from the press, <laughs> or at least the Washington Post, doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily last. Yeah, yep. so so with the start of World War One, things change a little bit, don't they? <laughs> and so yeah. they continue with the National Women's Party. They continue to stand as silent sentinels um, as the war is starting. And so that um, changes things just a bit. And can you speak to that a little bit, Kevin, about how the media changes their view of these women and and how the public changes their view of these women as they're standing as silent sentinels when we as a country are at war? Yeah, yeah. I mean, early April of 1917, the U.S. joins the mil- you know, joins yes, World yes. War One. This is huge. You know, Carrie Chapman Catt actually uh, pulls her protesters out at this point and actually 
publicly comes out against the National Women's Party. So you have like the major, uh, you know, person with the National Women's Party uh, or with the, you know, the suffrage movement through Kat basically coming out in public opinion and saying, this is wrong. They need to put their banners down. We need to think about the war. And so, you know, by June of 1917, they're being, uh, you know, attacked, you know, anti-protesters are out there. I think in 19, June of 1917, uh, it was reported 2,000 anti-suffragist protesters yelling at like three dozen women of the National Women's Party, calling them traitors and treason. And, oh, my. Uh, they actually charged the protesters. And uh, uh, there's a story of Hazel Hunkins climbing up the White House gate to, to hold her banner up in the air and, uh, you know, pulled out of her hand, you know. So she, she even says, uh, I was there one minute there, standing in perfect peace and quiet, holding a banner. Three minutes later, I was holding a broken staff with no banner in the center of a surging crowd. She said, well, anyway, it was an experience and not one I ever want to go through again. Wow. You know, you can imagine, like, uh, some scary. Of those, yeah. Some of those pictures at that time, too, you know, showing like one or two isolated women standing against the, the, the gates of the White House and just, you know, people all around them, not just men, but actually uh, suffragists uh, were, were also uh, a woman named Richardson was one who had had been known to get in their face and was like yelling at them because as a suffragist, she just thought it was in poor taste for, uh, you know, the National Women's Party to continue their protests. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, newspapers picked up on that story. And uh, it's a great quote from uh, July 20, 1917. It said, when asked why she and other suffragists were making laughing stocks of themselves, Miss Hunkins said, we are taking advantage of the war situation to point out that if this war is for democracy, if we are to send our soldiers 3,000 miles into the trenches of a foreign land to fight for democracy, it would not be amiss to have democracy extended at home. So, you know, they, they just felt like there had been all these wars in the past. Right. And people would like put, you know, their, their cause to the side for years. Right. And then it would take a while to get them started up, whether it was, you know, obviously the Civil War or the Spanish-American War. And they just said, you know what, we're, we're, we've got momentum. We're just going to keep going. Yeah. So at the time, public opinion was horrific. I mean, uh, some of the newspapers in Montana were, you know, had Hazel Hunkadora Hunkins. You know, who does she think uh, she should be taken out behind the woodshed and spanked by her mother? Oh my word! Oh yeah, it was really really incredible. the low, low name calling and demeaning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the Billings Women's Club said uh, a Billings girl is now one of the seemingly star performers in parading the banners, and this could should not be construed as expressive of sentiment in Billings on the subject of human suffrage. These sentiments expressed on the banners are improper at the time a nation is at war. So, yeah, they were really, you know, one, one woman said, you know, uh, it is shocking to think that such thing, thin-blooded, narrow-minded women should have been born. Uh, on June 22nd, another person says this, these women are vicious, contemptible in the sight of God and man, pig-headed, pig brainless, and heartless. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing to, to hear that language, which I think we hear so many times, right, Crystal? Who, whoever's fighting 
for their legal rights under the law gets and it sounds so bizarre to our ears right now to hear that and and yet uh to to think that um that a woman just has no place in even saying you know shouldn't democracy include the other half of the population um you know women or more than half and here we are fighting for it sending people to die for it abroad and we don't have it at home yeah yeah, go ahead. Sure. I was just going to say, um, the American Experience on PBS did a, a, um, a, a program this year in honor of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. And it's a two-part series, and I highly recommend that people watch it because there's a lot of video um, in those in that program that shows these women at parades, um, shows these women fighting for suffrage in parades, um, on street corners, on soapboxes, and the crowds around them are so ominous, and they are, you can just see the hate on the people's faces, both men and women, as they're looking at these women, as they're talking about the right um, for to get the vote for women, and so it's just, you know, I I have never seen anything like that in those, you know, those videos, those stills, and then they have some st- great photographs in this um, documentary as well. But the hate is just blatant on these people's faces. And it really speaks to what you're talking about, Kevin. And I think the time period, too, if you even look at just like focus on, you know, one of the stories that's so interesting about Hazel Hawkins is how come we've never heard of her really for the most right. part. You know what I mean? And so, you know, when I, when I first learned of her name through a photograph at the Library of Congress, I went over to the Women's History Museum here in town and I wanted to learn more because I was like, wow, we have a suffrage from, you know, suffragist from Billings. So went over to the Women's History Museum and they actually had a picture of Alice Paul on the wall. So I was like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, wow. so I said, hey, you know, her good friend Alice Paul, you know, she was on the front line. There's all these great photographs of Hazel Hunkins, Helen, you know, Helen Ann. Uh, what can you tell me about her? And they knew nothing. They oh. not heard. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting that. And I always wonder, you know, you don't see a lot in the newspapers for this time period locally about her. You know, she's her pictures on the front page of the Washington Post, her pictures on the, uh, you know, whatever, you know, Biscayne, Bicky, you know, Picky or whatever. You know, you're seeing her all around the country, but it's almost like, um, well, like she says this to her mother in letters. She's so she's so embarrassed that she's, you know, you know, the daughter of, you know, a woman who's so notorious. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like for, for her mother and father, you know, and then her stepbrother later who owned uh, Hunkins Jewelry on, on uh, North Broadway here in downtown Billings. Uh, it was a huge embarrassment. And, and again, in the context of what's happening in Montana, in light of things like the Sedition Act are going on. And Montana is really leading that, you know, the idea that if you speak out against the war, you might go to prison. Right. Especially if you yeah. There are all of these things that are play in Montana and like the risk that she is taking is extraordinary, especially when you look at even that, you know, some of these other things that are going on and playing, you know, in terms right. of how we're supporting the war effort and stuff. So, so uh, huge, you know, huge yeah. risks and, and a couple things on that one, it's, it's amazing that it was such a risk coming from a state that already had the right to vote, which tells you a lot about how people actually felt about women 
voting right. or having regrets at that point. I mean, I think the fact that it was considered something she shouldn't be doing. And then when you talk about how little she was in the press locally in Montana, and yet so much in the press, on the coast, the national press, then do you think do you think that maybe she or somebody, her family, was working to keep her out of the local press because of embarrassment or maybe they didn't want? Because clearly these newsmen know what's going on in the bigger, you know, uh, news organizations. They choosing not to cover it on purpose? What do you think? I don't, I don't know, because, I, you know, like the Hunkins Jewelry was big supporters of buying Liberty Bonds. You know, they, they were, you know, you can imagine the family pressure to make sure they weren't like and leaning anywhere toward the you know, sedition. So you, you'll see the Hunkins Jewelry, local jewelry stores buying Liberty Bonds, putting out big ads that say, you know, support the war effort and things like that. You know, so, you know, she's doing this incredible balancing act, you know, um, you know, as a, a young, educated person. Uh, you know, firmly entrenched in, in the cause itself. And then, the, you know, I I don't know what, what the rationale is for not giving her the kind of publicity. Like I said, you know, they, there's mentions of her, like the Billings Women's Club saying, hey, there's a Billings girl. They don't even mention her name, mm-hmm. you know. And then, of course, the Helena paper really hammers on her. Campbell, who was the head of the editor of the Helena uh, Independent, was really one of the major movers in the Sedition Act. So you hear a lot from him, uh, more opinion pieces about how Hazel Hunkins should be so happy because she's the center of attention. Isn't that what all little girls want, you know? I mean, really kind of going after her. Yeah, so... So Helena Helena wasn't holding back, but Billings was for whatever reason, which is so interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know, Hunkins Jewelry was right in the of the downtown, yeah, yeah. Right on North Broadway. Uh, it's actually where Rebels and Razors are today, which I always thought was ironic. <laughs> you know, they didn't know they had like a Hazel Hunkins connection to right. the name Rebels and Razors. But uh, yeah, it is like if you see a picture of Billings in 1910, that's the block you see. You know, the Babcock Theater, you know, yeah. you know that, that 1916, the, the Sonic Temple, that is the heart of downtown. That's where all the mm. prominent business people are, you know. And, you know, his, her stepbrother, uh, you know, he's involved with a lot of social groups like, you know, the Elks and groups like that. So the family is quite involved. Her dad actually died by 1907. Um, so he's he's not seeing this. It's just the, the widow or, uh, and the stepson uh, are here during the war. Maybe they felt like, let's like back off the, the poor yeah, widow. Yeah, I think to me, that's that era, too, when powerful families could make agreements with news organizations or people were respectful of certain types of things like that and maybe because they bought ads and they were so central in so many ways that there was you know right there in billings they were not going to cover something that was upsetting um and controversial whereas helena didn't have any reason not to right yeah this is an interesting point because i just remembered this the quote i had about uh you know her saying that uh, it would not be admissed to have democracy extended home is actually in the Billings Gazette, but it was on something like page eight. And the header of the article is Billings girl, innocent victim. Oh, and she my. Was arrested. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Billings girl, innocent victim. Uh, Montana woman has been in the lineup of the limelight recently in connection with picketing is Miss Hazel Hunkins. But Hazel has only achieved that notoriety of getting into jail. And she has been arrested but it was a mistake. 
Oh, interesting. Like so the, the sympathy, it's a very mm-hmm. sympathetic portrait rather mm-hmm. than yeah. attacking. I think yeah. that's a very interesting um, yeah. thing that's telling us about the times. Yeah. But let's talk the, about the, the jailing. Let's talk about that a bit. Before we go to jail, I just have one more question about the media. You know, so we've talked about kind of the media reacting. But what about the manipulation of the media by Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Cat? And can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and I, and I do think that that's, that's where the jailing comes in. Okay. I think the arrests are, you know, like, you know, you have all these young, you know, I mean, uh, Hazel Hunkin is mentioned as an attractive young 23-year-old kind of thing. Now they're being arrested. You know, for what? Well, this is what I love. This is what you often see in social movements. So initially they were arrested to protect them. The police oh. came and, and arrested them because they were afraid they would be harmed. Okay. And that's often you hear that in the first wave of arrests is that, you know, we want to make sure you're safe. We, we have an example here with the South Park pool in 1914. Uh, African-Americans weren't allowed to use the pool. The rationale was it was unsafe because there were people out there who were going to threaten them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you kind of use that kind of excuse in the front mm-hmm. run. But um, really, by the time now they're being arrested, like in August and then uh, into October, uh, in that period where they're getting arrested kind of on a regular basis. And then some mistreatment is now happening in the prison, as you're, you're probably alluding to. That's when that shift starts happening. Once women start going to prison, and once you start going on hunger strikes, or you get mistreated in a prison, or you're forced to you know, drink uh, you know buckets of slop that have worms in it, and the word gets out. Oh goodness, Kevin, talk a little bit about how how they weren't treated necessarily. I think you've said they weren't treated as political prisoners. They were being treated right. badly. So this becomes the crux of this media shift that you were talking about that's in right. the coverage. And the other thing that's key is it follows the same pattern that you will see later with Gandhi and with Martin Luther King is that, you know, the judge is like, oh, God, you know, these 12 women, okay, 10 cents, you're out of here, or a dollar, you know, the For fine is ridiculously okay. low. And they were like, we aren't paying. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. they made a decision purposely to go to jail instead of pay their fine. That's right. And once they're in jail, uh, then it's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? You know, like you said, they're not political prisoners now. They're going to jail for... Uh, you know, obstruction of a, a public sidewalk, which was completely huh. absurd. The sidewalks are, you know, 15 feet wide, uh, you know, in front of the White House. So once once Alice Paul and Lucy Burns and some of the leaders decided, no, we're not paying the fine anymore, we're going to go to jail, then the press is looking at that going, well, that seems kind of harsh, you know what I mean? And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the night of terror the Conquin prison, uh, episode in I think October of 1917. The, I think it is called the Night of Terror, which is a major pivotal movement in the National Women's Movement and the National Women's Party. Uh, you know, several women were imprisoned uh, in this prison in Virginia, and it, and word got out they were being mistreated. You know, yeah. and then word got out that uh, you know some of them were on hunger strikes, including Alice Paul. And you know, basically Alice Paul said at that point, you know, if I die. This could be good for the cause. Oh, gosh. You know I mean? She like, was like that focused. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, then you have pictures and images of women 
uh, you know, getting tubes stuck down their throat or up there, you know what I mean? Mm. Force feeding them, you know, and then you have images later on. This would continue because uh, even though Hazel Hunkins wasn't at the, uh, or, uh, at the Night of Terror later on in 1918, she would be in prison also and then go on a hunger strike. And then the images of the women being released, even after just five days of, of starvation, uh, you know, they could barely walk. Mm. That's all of a sudden what the public is seeing. You know, a 25 or a 30-year-old young woman educated saying women should have the right to vote when ha like a third of the states already do have it. And then that's, that's Alice Paul classic strategy for the National Women's Party, you know, to, to threaten your own health in uh, the guise that public opinion and then the press will begin shifting their thinking. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now it's an embarrassment to the White House. It's an embarrassment to the president. Very powerful. Thinking that, that these women are willing to make a stand like that. And so that, that's what the, you know, things like the Night of Terror become so significant for in 1918. I'm sorry, in October of 1917, it's just that, to sway public opinion. And it definitely works. You know, nobody wants to see, you know, a 26-year-old woman who was standing on a sidewalk with a banner thrown into prison, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden going to die for it. That makes, it makes the public kind of rethink, you know, what it is that they're standing for. And, you know, they were allowed to continue protesting too, you know. It's amazing that Hazel was also involved to that level, going to jail, doing a hunger <laughs> strike. What, what do we know from her letters or diaries about, how she felt about that, what that was like for her, and what maybe her mom might have thought. Yeah, I think uh, early on, you know, she she was almost like, a, you know, I'm so sorry, this is so embarrassing for you, you know, I mean, I would do anything, you know, but I think we're in the right, I think we're in the just cause, and she would tell these little stories to her mother to try to, uh, you know, emphasize, you know, the importance. One of the stories I recall is she said, you know, she told her mother about a man who came with his young son to the White House to see these, you know, two or three dozen women with their, you know, with their banners there. And, and the man said, look, look at these women. They are making history right now. You remember these women. Look what they're doing, how brave they are. So she had stories like that. But she also had the stories of like, you know, you know, a young woman would come out with, with the roses and say, thank you so much, you know. So, so, so those stories become more of the narrative as she's continuing this conversation. By 1918, she's like saying, oh, my God, we got arrested again. This, it's a glorious day for women's rights. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> literally, like, within a year, because of apologizing to, like, you know, you should be proud of us because we are, you know, we're kicking some butt out here, you know. Wow. It's very interesting, her transition uh, in her letters to her mother, even. You know, that, uh, yeah, it's it, like you can almost see in the beginning, you know, in the early days, you know, the, like especially the early or April, May period that she was, she was almost to the point where she was like questioning whether she should be doing this. You know, is this damaging to her family? Is this damaging to her mother? You know, if she walks through Billings, you know, is, even she said, even my mother now, I'm sure you probably have to walk through town with your head down because mm. they'll say, they'll whisper, oh, that's the the mother of that crazy, you know, radical, you know, yeah. uh, like I said, by 1918, she's like, oh, we're in. 
Well, <laughs> so once you go to jail, you know, you probably, and you've bonded with these women that you go to jail with, you, the, there's probably no going back after that. And then they can yeah. see the power of it as well, I'm sure. Yeah. And I, and I think that, like I said, 1918, of course, they continue protesting into 1919. Um, I do have a great quote, though, from the hell on a paper about her. Uh, this is, like I said, Campbell, who's the editor. Uh, that he said, Hazel Hunkins is simply one of the misguided friends of the suffrage cause. She is part of the lunatic fringe, which hangs forever around the edge of the suffrage cause. Little Miss Hazel Hunkins of Montana has been misled. It is the duty of Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin to hunt up that little bastard graduate and pin a tag to her so she will not get lost on her long journey and then send her back to Montana. And if Hazel is naughty when she gets out here in the sunshine, where straight thinking is the rule, her mother should take her out behind the woodshed and let the neighbors hear the gentle patter of her slipper on the bustle of Hazel's overalls, because we guess suffragists all wear overhauls or overalls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great you know, quote. I know. Isn't that, I mean, yeah. you know, Campbell, even though he's the head of the Sedition Act, he does have some of the great historic quotes because he was like, such an outrageous showman and his lettering and stuff. So, so I'm just going to break in here for a minute and say, if you just joined us, you're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts myself, Nancy Mahoney, and Crystal Alegria. We're speaking today with Kevin Koistra about the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and Montana's own suffragist, Hazel Hunkins. Kevin, we've been... Um talking about Alice Paul, we've been talking about Carrie Chapman Catt and Hazel Hunkins, and of course this year, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment at Extreme History, we've been talking a lot about these women, but we've also been trying to expand this historical narrative a little bit and talk about the racism and deliberate exclusion of women of color in the suffrage movement. And so, you know, I I just, I was wondering if you could speak to this a little bit. And and of course, uh, there's so much history behind women of color in this movement as well. It wasn't just white women uh, fighting for women's suffrage, but it was also for, it was also uh, women of color fighting for suffrage. And one of the um, stories that always stands out to me is the story of Ida B. Wells. And she was a part of this movement. And in 1913, um, there was going to be this march in Washington, D.C. This was actually the first march. And um, the black suffragists were trying to join with the with Alice Paul's group in this march. And Alice Paul instructed them to walk at the back of the crowd. So Alice Paul instructed this group of black suffragists Instead of walking with their their delegation from their state, they were asked to walk at the back of the parade. And Ida B. Wells um, was having none of that. And she said um, to Alice Paul, quote, either I go with you or not at all. She said, I am not taking this stand because I personally wish for recognition. I am doing it for the future benefit of my whole race. And so I think about this, and I think about, um, you know, what these women were um, willing to sacrifice to get the vote for themselves, for for white women. And I don't know if Hazel um, 
spoke about this in her letters to her mother or if she wrote about this in her diary. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about this um, more broadly. But if you have some examples from Hazel, maybe you could speak to those as well. I don't really have any examples from her. Um, you know, but it always that, that was always very curious to me as you look at the history. You know, again, I think you're know, going back to that diversity of strategies, you know, like I said, the Carrie Nation versus uh, Margaret Sanger versus like Guggenheim and Hearst and all these really wealthy women kind of paying to support a politician, Sojourner Truth coming out of the abolition movement. Um, but I go back even further before Seneca Falls, and one of the things that created Seneca Falls was there was a, I think it was an abolition movement, like in England, if I remember right, and the women weren't invited in. Right. And it was that, it was a lot of those women who said, what? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We're with you. And that almost, that like stirred the pot. Yeah. You know, to get women saying, wow, you're going to discriminate against us? We're, we're, we have a voice. We're powerful figures in this movement. And yet the male-female thing was set up to separate them. And you would think in a movement like that, they would recognize when they were doing it themselves based mm -hmm. on things like skin tone. You know what I mean? Right. But they don't. You know? I mean, we're, we're right at that period in the early 1900s where interracial marriage is now being prohibited by law. Uh, so you're seeing some of the worst racism in the United States at the same time this movement is happening, you know, so um, I, I don't recall any specific examples from like Hazel Hunkins was talking about such a thing, you know, um, you almost wonder if Alice Paul is thinking that way, that it's being accepted, you know, by then, obviously, uh, you, know, in North, you know, in the United States, we had already figured out a system, you know, like I think Wilkinson now calls caste, a caste system, you know what I mean? Where we're separating or segregating, segregating people by their Ooh. skin tone. Isabel Wilkerson, is that who you're speaking yeah. of? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, she doesn't really talk about it. I did wonder about that, too, you know, because I've heard these stories, you know, the same with Sojourner, Sojourner Truth and some of these uh, major players like Ida Wells, you know, of course, this, Doing, you know, doing a lot of work through journalism at the time. But, right. Uh, yeah. So, Kevin, uh -huh. I was wondering, it we're fully in the Jim Crow South at that point. You know, we're right. and when we talk about there being some states and a, and a state by state strategy was one of the other strategies, and there were some Western states. And um, I don't know this, and I don't know if you do. Were there any states in the South where women had the vote? Was it Virginia or? North Carolina, was there anything um, much in the South? I just, I'm interested because there's almost, I'm wondering if Alice Paul is thinking, I want to have women have the right to vote, and I don't want to muddy this up with monkeying around with the additional layer of race and Jim Crow laws. And so mm -hmm. she, it was easier for her to say, that can't be 
the the sole focus of this cause. We just have to get women's right to vote. And if I let these women march intermingled and up front, I'm going to lose some support. It, it's fascinating to me that overlap of race and gender and the complications. And by now, the, the Civil War has passed. Reconstruction, though, has failed. And we are fully in segregated voter suppression where black men aren't really even getting the right to vote. And, and in much in the future, we'll then have the the Civil Rights Act. So so I, it's very interesting, and I just think it often, as Crystal's pointed out, it often gets lost in these stories, and maybe Hazel being very much from um, a place like Montana, that aspect of African-American involvement isn't something she's grown up with, and, and then Native Americans being on reservations. Maybe it just wasn't very visible to her in, in her role. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. Like I said, um, I think I, the only the only reference I, I remember is that when they were in the prison at Oconquin, there was some concern because there were, you know, black guys in the prison. You know what I mean? I think oh, Alex sure. used that, you know, even make a point like, oh, my God, it was that dangerous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that in itself may have been a play like that, like you're suggesting, you know, because, you know, not only were they being mistreated, but the other prisoners were these, you know, black convicts, you know what I mean? So they were in the same kind of uh, area in the cell block. And, and you're right, maybe she used that. It got them more sympathy in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting. So let's talk about the 19th Amendment, which passes August 18th of 1920. And um, we're just going to read that language of the amendment. It's very short. It says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So I was interested if you could tell us anything about when this passed. Do you know where Hazel was when the amendment passed? Do you have any information about her reaction in general, just to personalize it after all this hard work? Um. I think she was doing some civil service work at the time, and she she was still part of. Uh, she was actually showed up on a brochure for the National Women's Party just prior, mm-hmm. called the militant wing of the National Women's Party. So, uh, and you know, of course, she was still protesting. I mean, she was the one who was watching, uh, uh, doing the watch fires in front of Lafayette Park uh, as late as May of uh, uh, 1919. So, the shift had already happened once the war ended, and Wilson uh, was there. Um, you know, she's still on the front line. They're not going to give up protesting until it happens. But I do know that, I don't know specifically, like, what happened that particular day. I've read the Alice's Paul story. Of course, it was a big celebration, and they were all, like, they, you know, I think there's a famous photo of her, Alice Paul standing on a balcony, and all the women are, you know, saying, you know, the, the struggle is there, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the party itself, um I don't have, like I said, I don't have specifics on what Hazel was doing on that particular day for whatever reason. It wasn't in her letters and stuff. Um, but I, I, I do love what the uh, newspapers were saying. The organizers of the National Women's Party, uh, which had focused exclusively on the National Amendment, had all, what one paper said, worked themselves hard in order to work themselves out of jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yes. So almost like at that point, you know, they were going to, uh, you know, be disbanded, you know, so, and, uh, right. you know, at this point, she's also seeing somebody, and uh, 
uh, a journalist, uh, Charles Hallinan, and, and this is like 1920, and um, I'm not quite sure of the relationship uh, with Mr. Hallinan. Uh, he seems to still be married, and she's with him, and she's having children. I haven't put that storyline together. So anyway, they leave the country, you know? <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. One embarrassment is enough for her mom, right? right, so, right. You know, we need to have a part two and I hear know. the rest of that story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one of the, I think, one of the driving points to go to England. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so they would go for the next 50 years. So. Well, you know, I just love to think about that day and think about um, how that must have felt for these women after they had worked for so long. And, you know, it wasn't just them. It had been generations of women who had worked for this. And so um, there's a, a book that I read, the, Wim- the Women's Hour, which was just written by Elaine Weiss. And in that book, she talks about how some of the women who were down in Tennessee, which was the last state to ratify the amendment, they were getting ready that day to go and kind of do their final, um, listen to the final hearings on this um, before it was ratified by Tennessee. And those women, as they were getting up that day, they were putting on their white dresses because that was kind of the the color. Um, they were putting on their pins. Um, a lot of the women who had been jailed, Alice Paul would give them a little pin that was an emblem of the jail door. And so these women who had all been put in jail, who had, who had been jailed for this work, they all put their pins on and then they went to the state house. And so I, you know, I, I just think about that and think about what Hazel was doing on that day, wondering what she was doing that day. But she was probably very proud of the work she had done when that amendment was finally passed. Yeah, one one thing about the amendment that's interesting. I I don't have it with me today, but um, you know, when, when it's passed, um, oh here it is. So you know that it was ratified. Obviously, uh, it became an, an amendment in uh, on August 18, 1920. Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment. Um, so it becomes the law of the land. But on the books, on state legislatures. It's still on the books that women can't vote. Finally, the last states to ratify were Georgia in 1970, oh. Louisiana in 1970, North Carolina in 1971, and Mississippi in 1984. So, <laughs> so that, I was I mean, right about the South when I was talking about um, uh, maybe Alice Paul's strategy was we're not going to go there because none of those states have given the women. That's why they were recruiting well, from Montana. <laughs> I always Whoa. wonder about the states' rights thing. You know, the the, the groups like Chat, you know, Chapman Cat, who fought for state rights. You know, what did it? I mean, what did it take until 1984? Yeah, for Mississippi to literally, legitimately. I mean, you know, even Alabama didn't pass the anti-interracial marriage uh, act until 2000. Right. You know I mean, still yes. on their books. Obviously, the law by 1967 right. said you could marry anybody with any skin tone. Uh, but, but, you know, I, you know, you know, the state's rights issue. And one thing that's interesting, too, about like, for example, today with the marijuana uh, legislature that's going through, it, it does remind me a little of the women's rights, uh, the way the Western states, one by one, until there was like a block of 14 or 15. Right. You know, then once you have a block, then it's like, wow, you know, they're doing it, you know. Yeah different with marijuana because it's a federal crime yet but but in some ways you see that little momentum of the states actually 
carrying forth something. And this, the same with the right to marry. If right. you're if you're right. same sex couple, state by state right. until eventually. Mm-hmm. So it, it does seem to be that that's the way we get the cultural change that's by right. states starts to then push the right. the national agenda, either Supreme Court cases or constitutional amendments. But we still had. Um, a ways to go even yeah. after the amendment. So so the amendment passes in 1920 like we talk about but you know it really only gives white women the right to vote. But and that's because of Jim Crow laws, poll taxes, most of this in the south, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, violence and lynching and a lot of other means of voter suppression. So black women really aren't able to vote until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Of course, Native American women are not recognized as citizens of the United States until 1924, and so they're not able to vote until that time. And Asian American women and really men were ineligible for naturalized citizenship on account of race and only won the vote in 1943. So, Kevin, I know Hazel um, didn't sit back on her laurels after the 19th Amendment was passed. She continued to work for women's rights and, and, and work on some of these issues that I just talked about. Can you tell a little, us a little bit about her later years and how she continued to advocate for women and women's rights? Yeah, so, so she, uh, she and Charles, who will eventually marry, uh, you know, raise four children in England. And, uh, you know, she's still a, she's a journalist and works for the State Department at the time. He's a journalist. Um, and really, they, she joins the uh, Six Point Group, which is a British organization. Uh, and she actually eventually becomes the only American-born woman to lead the British women's feminist organization. And, you know, they were all about, like, you know, a lot of those, uh, you know, really straightforward things, like, you know, the, the rights of a, of a woman in a divorce, you know, the rights of a woman uh, for child custody, you know, things like that. Equal pay for civil service jobs, equal pay for men and women in teaching positions. So, you know, really kind of uh, some real basic economic issues that, uh, you know, would still be are still in play today in some ways, you know. And so that that is her focus for at least the next, you know, into the almost 50 years, into the 1960s, and even into the 1970s. And then in 1970, uh, 77, she comes to the United States uh, and joins the Equal Rights Amendment fight. And uh, I do uh, love some of the quotes from, uh, so she joins the Equal Rights Amendment fight. A newspaper uh, wrote, a hellraiser at 87. <laughs> I, you know, I, and I love giving That's this awesome. program. That's to like, awesome. yeah. I, I really miss my senior citizen programs, you know, because obviously with COVID and stuff like that. But I love going in and doing her story because, you know, a lot of these stories are these youthful people who go to jail. You know, here, a hellraiser at 87. Hazel Hunkins, 87, is a tiny gray-haired woman with a feminist vocabulary, a notorious arrest record, and a surprisingly sharp tongue, nice. and that's from August of 1977. Another, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune wrote, a tiny spirited symbol of the women's movement. It was more than half a century ago that Hazel Hunkins Hallinan set a fire on the White House lawn in the battle for women's suffrage. And then she's quoted, you know, you could do the same thing today, the 87-year-old fighter for equal rights advised <laughs> a new generation of feminists on Tuesday. Um, 
you know, and she also reflected at that time uh, in 1977, she said, you know, what's it like to be a survivor? She was one of the last of the suffragists who had been on the streets like that back in the 17 to 19, uh, 19 period in particular. She said, now they're all gone. It's, it's kind of lonely. It's very lonely. Oh. And uh, she solely named her friends who were at her side, you know, uh, Alice Paul, Lucy Burns, Mabel Vernon. I mean, these are the, the big names of the National Women's Party, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Hazel is determined as long as the drums bang faster for the parade, she will continue to march. And she said equal rights under the law should not be denied or abridged on account of sex. And she said the National Equal Rights Amendment reads as though, as she said, it comes from the pen of Thomas Jefferson. A society that is more fair and equitable is going to help men as much as women. And that oh, was the 19... That's great. So, so eloquent. And I so, so wish we had yeah. the Equal Rights Amendment um, passed, still yeah. not ratified. So, you know, Kevin, um, like Hazel, um, Alice Paul, like the next day after the, the 19th Amendment was passed, they started working on the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, that is still not passed. And so that is what my generation is working mm-hmm. on now and, and future generations. So so these things are um, still in the works. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, yeah, the 19th Amendment was written, what, 75 years before, prior to it actually coming through, too, right? I mean, right, uh, right, right, you know, right. Good point. Yeah, so you can you can hear the squeaking sort of slow wheel of change in this country, right? <laughs> we have a lot of innovation and very slow to change our democracy in terms of these fundamental rights. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for the conversation about women's suffrage through the eyes of Hazel. I know I I always think of these women when I drop off my ballot in the ballot box, which I did just recently. Right on. Um, I also think of all the women and men who still struggle today to vote for various reasons. There's still a lot of voter suppression. So a lot of these things that we've talked about and, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment, everything we talked about today is still kind of up and open um, currently. So this conversation reminds us that democracy is a participation sport, (laughs) of course, and voting rights are never guaranteed. They have been fought for, and we need to continue to fight for them. So I encourage everyone to read up on our voting history. It's really very fascinating. It gives you really a lot of insight into why it's so important that we vote and know the legacy of voting in these United States of America that we so love. And, and cherish. And um, no better time than today, this Friday, where we're still counting the votes to remember that every single vote counts and all those votes were hard fought for. So um, very, very timely discussion, Kevin. Thank you. Do you have any last words? Uh, there's a great button I saw, and it's a picture of uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And uh, the two of them, you know, of course, they're, you know, 1860s uh, period kind of clothing and uh, the button says oh my god you had to wait six hours to vote that must have been awful oh i I need that that button i need that button Uh, kevin isn't that incredible and i I think actually what i have found too recently is that people i've heard you know like hey i had to wait hours eight hours and they're like it was worth it yes Yes. i I think it's a great thing and all the people that voted uh, in the election that we're you know experiencing now, I mean, incredible numbers of people. That's a great thing. 
Nothing yeah. like yeah. razor thin yeah. margins to get the heart pumping and people right. out to vote, I think, you know? It's good. It's exciting. Very exciting. Very exciting. That's right. Yeah. So, Kevin, um, if people want to learn more about Hazel Hunkins, about Alice Paul, about um, Kate, Carrie Chapman Cat, where can you send them? Yeah, you know, um, we, uh, the way I do it, obviously, is, you know, I have like newspapers.com. I love to go back and look at original, you know, articles from the time period. You know, of course, there's a, some great books. I don't remember the title now. A couple of books I read about Alex Paul, the National Women's Party. They're, they're really great. There was, there was actually a National Women's Party book written in 1924 also. Um, Inez. I can't remember her full name, but, you know, so you have, like, documentation of somebody who actually was on the streets, you know. In terms of, like, the Hazel Hunkin stuff, you know, we actually do now, the Western Heritage Center does have a traveling exhibit of her experience with amazing photographs. we got a lot of photographs. Her records are actually at Harvard University or at the Schlesinger Library, um, in fact, east in Boston. And so we've got those photos, we've got her diaries, we've got her letter excerpts, and that's in our traveling piece, uh, Ruth Ferris also. Um, Kevin, can is that exhibit up currently at the Western Heritage Center? It's not, but I would encourage anyone, if you have a, like a business or a museum in the state, you know, it's been obviously a little uh, odd the last few months, but um, if like you're a small museum, like in the Carter County Museum in Ekalaka, and you want to borrow the exhibit for two months, we do it for little or no cost. Uh, the public library has borrowed it, borrowed it, you know, the airport is, you know, so we, we build all these little traveling displays because it's much easier to go where people are congregating, like the mall and stuff like that. So Fantastic. Um, so so you this is, contact the Western this is, sorry, an exhibit that you all developed and that it can travel. So, so people could get in touch with the Western Heritage Center if they're interested in, sure. in displaying sure. it. That's wonderful information. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and that, yeah. that and video. Other, okay. Go, oh, sorry. I was going to say one other thing, too, is Ruth Ferris also developed a statewide curriculum on Hazel Huntings that is now across the state. So, you know, that's, that's amazing. She's developed a curriculum that's, that I, I don't remember what grade, uh, eighth grade maybe, uh, use them across the state, and that's available also. Okay. So you can teach your students in the classroom about her work. Wonderful, okay. wonderful. Yeah. And that video, that documentary I mentioned earlier was called The Vote um, by American Experience. That's really a great one to see. And then um, also look into information on Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell. Um, there's so many other women who are part of this uh, suffrage movement as well. Um, look into those because there's a lot of books on especially Ida B. Wells. And uh, so look into some of that information. There's two books that I wanted to give a shout out to. One called Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. And that was written by Martha Jones, and it just came out this year. That's a great book. And then also The Women's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote by Elaine Weiss. So those are two of many books that you could read, but those are two great books on a more national level. I'm looking around at Michelle. I I know I have some good books up there. um, (laughs) Go go visit Kevin in the tower if you want more information. The the other thing, too, is that we're we're developing a list, uh, you know, here of, like, suffragists or women fighting for the right to vote from Montana. And very few have had any coverage. I mean, uh, 
uh, you know, of course, Jeanette Rankin, now Hazel Hunkins, uh, Mary uh, from, uh, who's your, your suffragist from Bozeman? Mary Alderson. Uh, yeah. Mary yeah. Alderson, thank yeah. you. Uh, you know, so, but, but there's a list of like, I think we have like 25 or 30 names that have come up. Um, there's nothing about them. I know. You know we haven't taken the opportunity to, to kind of work our way down that list, but if anybody wants to tackle a couple, we'll throw them your way. So you just email me at the Western Heritage Center. And we'll, and of course, whatever research you do, you have to share it with us. And the of course. Yes. 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 Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. And thanks everyone out there for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again for more Dirt, Dirt on, on the, the Past. past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base, so please share it. Thanks, and thanks for listening. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. Great to see you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>